wise counsel in that. Um, Isaiah 9, if you don't have a Bible, um, just invite you to put up your hand. Um, one of our ushers will get a Bible into your hand. We want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Um, we come together, um, not, uh, not to hear anything I have to say. I have no great wisdom. Um, we want to come together to God's Word and see what His Word has. Um, so I said we're looking at Isaiah 9, and, uh, and I hate to start a Christmas series on a low note, but, but the reality is pretty inescapable. Um, you don't have to look around long to be convinced. This world is a broken place. It is a broken place. Our world is filled with tragedy, with, with war, with hunger, starvation, with hardship, with pain, suffering, broken relationships, broken people. It's a mess. And we have a, a terrible tendency in our, in our culture, in the, the day and age in which we live, um, We've grown very accustomed, even quite comfortable, encouraging people, making people feel better, using just absolutely groundless phrases, right? People are hurting, scared, anxious, and, and we, we, we use these just absolutely hollow phrases. Don't worry. Everything will be okay. Why? Says who? Everything will turn out in the end. The sun will come out tomorrow. Just have faith. Just believe. Keep your chin up. It's the power of positive thinking. Well, I hate to break it to you. There's no power in positive thinking. The world's a mess, and we can't deny it. Underneath it, there's really no reason whatsoever as we give these kind of hollow, baseless encouragements. There's, there's no actual hope offered. And, and sadly, Christmas in our, in our broader world has become the pinnacle of that kind of empty, hollow, meaningless comfort. Christmas is talked about as a, a time to believe in magic, right? Christmas is a, it's a season of miracles. I even have to flip through the, the Hallmark Channel to find those. They just came right to me. Um, Christmas is a season to distract ourselves with, with feasting and fairy tales and pretty lights and shiny objects to pretend like the world isn't burning down around us. And the older we get, the more of the world we see, the more Christmases come and go, harder and harder it gets to distract ourselves with our own lies and lights and deceive ourselves. The real tragedy, the, the real catastrophe is that it, it, it just doesn't have to be this way. We tell ourselves these empty lies, but the truth of Christmas is actually far greater than the lies we tell ourselves. The, the reality of what Christmas is about, the reality that, that we're so determined to try to bury and forget, far surpasses what we've replaced it with. The truth of Christmas is wrapped up in, in one simple phrase, Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. And that might not seem all that impressive at first glance. There's a lot to be unpacked there. That might feel like another empty, hollow, fairy tale phrase, but it's not. Nothing could be further from the truth. This Sunday, we're going to um, look into, start into Isaiah 9. Um, over the next um, Two weeks looking at verses 1 to 7. Um, the centerpiece there is verse 6. Unto us a child is born. That's, that's the heart of it. That's the, the reason for all of it, the climax of it. So, so verses 1 to 5 we're going to look at this morning really tell us what will this child do 
And then verses 6 and 7 we'll look at next week. Tell us, who will this child be? And in unpacking the truth behind those words, behind this this child that is born, um, we will hopefully put our feet back on solid ground. The actual, tangible, real-life hope that, that Christmas actually brings. So first, this morning, look at verses 1 to 5. We see that this child will bring for his people um, from gloom to glory. From gloom to glory. Look with me, Isaiah chapter 9. I'm just going to read verses 1 through just the beginning of 6 there. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, In former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy in the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for this hope that you give. That unto us a son is born, a child is born. One who will give true hope in a world that so desperately needs it. God, would you cut through this morning the distractions and the discouragements in our hearts? Would you help us to see you again clearly, to see your gospel clearly, to reorient our hope, our life as it should be, Lord, that you would be magnified and that in that we would have joy in you that glorifies you all the more. So God, if there's anything I have to say that is not from you, that's not true to your word, that God, that those words would just fall to the ground and be forgotten, but Lord, that your truth would go forth that your word would accomplish all that you've set out for it to do. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have noticed, if you're really paying attention, my original plan was just to look at the the prophecy itself, starting in verse 2 of chapter 9. It's probably offset in your Bible, um, indented paragraph, kind of making making note of the fact that it's poetry there. That's that's correct. It should be that way. That's helpful. But I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 9 and actually even to the end of chapter 8 so that we can better understand the the context of of what's being said here. The first thing we have to see as we approach this passage, um, looking at verses 1 and 2, is the cover of darkness. The cover of darkness. That's where this begins. The first 12 chapters of the book of Isaiah are all about this relationship between the Lord and his people, Israel. Israel were God's chosen people, and yet they had turned away from him. They had turned their backs on him, rebelled against God. 
And so he was sending the, the wicked and violent Assyrians as his punishment, as his wrath against his disobedient people. The end of chapter 8, verse 19, points out their unfaithfulness. They're looking at mediums and necromancers. They're chasing after other religions. They've forgotten God. They're going every other direction instead of trusting the Lord. Verse 20, he calls them return. It's a call to the teaching, to the testimony. Come back to God's word. Come and see what God has said. But they refuse. They don't trust him. And then there's this picture of darkness that follows God's judgment rolls in thick. Verse 20 of chapter 8, to the teaching, to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And they, uh, when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upwards, and they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. These people had abandoned the word of God, they had turned away from God, and the result is this, this division, this dissension between them and God. They're enraged against God. They turn their faces upwards, they, they rail against him. Because of that, then they look to the earth for their joy, for their satisfaction, for their, for their life, and they find nothing, nothing but distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They would be thrust by God into thick darkness. This is a bleak picture. This is the background of this passage. God's people in rebellion against him, far from him, hating him, thrust by God into darkness, into anguish and gloom. That's where we, we round the corner into, into chapter 9. There's this shift in, in verse 9. There's a distinction then between what, what will be and what has been these, these latter times and former times. There's, there's a hope of the future, but we're just going to we're just going to camp right now looking at the reality that was. Chapter 9, verse 1 says of the former time was a time of darkness when God brought contempt in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Of course, the, the, the land of Israel right, is, is broken up into these 12 parcels. Each tribe gets their piece of land. The tribe of Zebulun, the tribe of Naphtali, they had their piece of land up in the north toward Assyria a region um, also called Galilee. And in that time, when, when this is written, 2 Kings 15 tells us the Assyrians had already begin, began to move in and their first move, their first entrance into the promised land was to capture the land of Naphtali. The Assyrians were, were one of the most brutal armies the world had ever seen. My, my kids were reading through this in their history together. I came upstairs and got this just truckload of what it means to flay your enemies. Um, don't Google it. Um, I, I don't know if all my kids finished breakfast that day. Um, they, they would flay their enemies alive. They would put them up on, on large stakes and hang their bodies up as a warning against those who rebel. They were vicious. They were brutal. 
Those that they left alive, um, they would leave some of the riffraff and the poor alone, but anyone who was successful and would have made any themselves, they would uproot them, take them out of their country and put them in another country and take the people from that country and disperse them around. And so uh, no one was left as a patriot to defend their, their homeland. Everybody was just a, a mix, mismatch of foreigners from these other conquered regions. That's why in verse 1, Naphtali, Zebulun are called Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, because they're, they're filled with people from, from the other nations. This is the, the picture of darkness, and that's, that's right where it would begin. It begins with hostility toward God, and it results in, a, in this hunger that's never satisfied, this bondage and, and slavery to, to wicked oppressor, war, unrest, death. It's darkness and gloom and anguish. Of course, Israel is in some ways unique, but in other ways, this story of Israel is just a, a microcosm of the human story. This is us. This is humanity. This is our world from the Garden of Eden on. It's so much darker than we think because it's not just the way things are. It's the way things are because we've turned against God, because we've rebelled against him. And he has thrust us in under the curse of sin. Because we've sinned against him and rebelled against him, God has given us over in, into our rebellion. He's left us in the darkness. The result is this emptiness of soul, an emptiness that can never be satisfied. And we see people trying to fill it, trying to satisfy it, running after food or serial relationships or drugs or alcohol or success or whatever it is. There's this, this vacuum that's just never filled. And so misguidedly, we turn in anger against God. We hate him. Even those who deny his existence seem to hate him. And though we, we all would long for something better, we all would say we want something better, the reality is we live under this slavery, not a slavery of some foreign country, but slavery of our own corruption. Though we want to live in a better world, we can't help but admit it's our own bad decisions that just continue to create the world that we live in. There's this brokenness in ourselves. We're enslaved by our own corrupted desires. Try as we may, we just continue to be ruled by them. And the result is a world that's broken, a world that is filled with spiritual unrest, with a hunger that is never satisfied. We lack peace, joy. It's, it's anguish and gloom. It's darkness. That's the reality of where this begins. The promise of Christmas will truly be, comes to Israel under the cover of, of darkness. At the same time, it's coming to a whole world, a whole world that is buried under the cover of darkness. And it's into that darkness that this glorious promise comes. Look again at verses 1, this time go through 3, this time looking at the other side of it, the coming of the light. The coming of the light. Look at, um, starting again in, Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. They are glad when they, as when they divide the spoil. And it's right smack in the middle of this darkness and gloom, this deep darkness where the promise of the coming of the light breaks in. The end of chapter 8, they'd abandoned the Lord. They had rebelled in hostility. There's distress and darkness and anguish and gloom. They'll be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9 begins, but looking forward to a better day. There will be, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The anguish, the gloom, the darkness, that's not the end of the story. That's not where it stays. There's a future time coming where the, the darkness will be overcome by the light. If you're a little confused by the, the language used here, um, we call this the prophetic perfect. He's speaking of a future reality, but in, in prophecy, speaking so confidently that he speaks of it in past tense terms. So it's, it's as if he's saying, um, when, when he says in the, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea or the, the pro- people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. What he's saying is when that time comes, it will be said. It will be true then. And what's happening here is Isaiah is joining this great host of of prophets and passages looking forward to the coming Messiah. He's he's building on these promises that have been growing, looking forward to God's coming rescuer. This is all pointing forward to verse 6, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. Isaiah's looking backwards. He's saying, remember, remember that promise that God made to, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that there would be a son born of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent? Remember the promise that God made to, to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed? Remember the promise that he made to, to David that one of his sons would rule in justice and righteousness on an everlasting throne? He's picking up on those pieces and saying, when he comes, it will also be like light shining into the darkness. Christmas, the birth of Jesus was the, was the entrance of that light into the world. There's this beautiful reality about light and darkness. Light always wins, right? The smallest light obliterates even the darkest of darkness. And, and no oppressive amount of darkness can put out even the smallest light. And this coming promised child would be a, a great light shining into the darkness of a broken world. It's interesting that here in Isaiah, it says that, that though Zebulun and Naphtali were, were brought into contempt in the, in the former time, in the later time, they would be made glorious while well, we fast forward, look at Matthew 4, 13 to 17. It says this of Jesus, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in a region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began his ministry. He first began to preach about the kingdom of heaven at hand in Capernaum by the sea, the the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. The very place where Isaiah says the, the darkness will be the darkest is the place where Jesus shows up. First really steps onto the scene. The gloom was the thickest where the glory would begin to shine. John 1, 4 and 5 says this of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. You can't tell me he's not thinking about Isaiah 9. Later, Jesus himself would say, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light has come. Jesus came to to rescue humanity out of the darkness to bring light and and glory in our world of darkness and gloom. Even though with Israel, the Lord was using physical slavery under a, a literal opposing nation, physical suffering and pain, the gloom, the, the light that Jesus would dispel is so much bigger than that. It's so much more than that. At the time Jesus came, Isaiah was once again, uh, sorry, Israel was once again being ruled by a foreign power, the Romans. Pilate, the the Roman official uh, who gave approval to Jesus' crucifixion, asked Jesus uh, if he was king of the Jews. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. You don't understand what I'm doing. You've missed the point. This is not about a physical slavery. After his death and his resurrection, um, even his own disciples would ask him, Acts 1.6. So they said, uh, they had come together. They asked him, Lord, will you, th- will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're saying, Jesus, is now the time you're going you're to throw off the Romans and bring in the kingdom of Israel? Rescue us from this slavery? How does Jesus answer? He totally redirects them. You've missed the whole point. He says, go and preach the gospel. Go and preach the, the good news of my coming to the ends of the earth, way outside of Israel. Go and preach. The need of the people of Israel, the need of all humanity is so much more than this problem of, of physical slavery and physical suffering. That's, that's down the chain of cause and effect. Our problem is so much deeper than corrupt governments and broken systems of this world. And all of the the things out there that cause unrest, that cause pain and suffering and sorrow. Our our real problem, our our deepest problem is a spiritual gloom, the darkness of sin. The sin that has overtaken and enslaved our own hearts. This separation from God and the, the wrath of God that we deserve because of that. Ephesians 
2 gives the perspective of this darkness. Verses 1 to 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the slavery. So I was, I was free. I, I did all of the things that I wanted to do, but the, the things that you wanted to do were enslaved to the corruption of sin, the darkness and gloom. That's what we truly need rescue from. Remember back in Matthew 4, Matthew quotes this passage saying Jesus came to to Zebulun and to Naphtali. He's making this, this point that this passage is fulfilled in him. What's the next verse? 417, he says, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Trust me, turn away from sin, trust in me. The light has come. This new kingdom has begun, but what is this kingdom? How do you enter into this kingdom? What will Jesus' rule be like? How do you experience this glory, this light that he's come to bring? Jesus says you enter it by repentance, by turning from sin and trusting in him. Ephesians Again, says the, the problem of darkness. We're, we're dead in our sin. We're driven by our, our fleshly desires, following after Satan himself. And then it goes on to say, verses four to seven, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved, raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places so that in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's, that's, that's gloom to glory. That's darkness to light. That's what Jesus came to give. The glory of what Christmas brings. Back to John 1.4. In him was life. New life. True life. And that life is the light of men. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. That's why he was born in a manger. That's why he would give himself to die on the cross. He came to us who were buried under that cover of darkness. As we so often sing, light and life for all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. That's that's what it's about. Nicodemus, John 3, Jesus says, you must be born again. You must have new life. You were dead in darkness and sin. Jesus came that you may have new life. A life freed from the slavery and anguish of darkness. That's the light that has come at Christmas. You ever wonder why we we put lights on our Christmas trees? All these old traditions have mixed origins and and, and they are... And, and, and it's hard to, to, to say exactly where they began. It's never all that clear. Um, evergreen trees um, were always a symbol of life, obviously. These green trees when everything else has gone dead. Uh, but the Christmas tree, as we know it, um, can be traced back to devout German Christians, 1500s celebrating the birth of Jesus in December. No accident that they're celebrating 
Um, as the, the, the darkness has grown thickest, the winter equinox and the light is just beginning to grow. They're capitalizing on this symbolism, this imagery. They would bring evergreen trees into their homes. They would decorate them with apples. And this picture, the, the green boughs of, of, of life and the bright fruit, they were meant as a reminder of the life and the abundance and the joy of the Garden of Eden. Just as as, as, as it had been in the Garden of Eden with all the, the provision and, and the life and God's goodness. And that Jesus came to restore us back to that kind of life. Back to, to a Garden of Eden-like perfect life in the, in the provision of God, in the peace of God, in the presence of God. And the story is hard to corroborate firmly, but it is generally accepted tradition that the first one to actually put lights on their tree at that time candles, um, which is terrifying. Um, but the first one, and it makes sense, bold enough and crazy enough to do that, traditionally is said to be Martin Luther himself. Whether it was Luther or somebody else, the imagery is rich. The symbolism is clear. He's, he's putting these pictures together. Jesus is the, the light of the world shining into the darkness, calling us back to life, calling us back to the Garden of Eden. And what we had there in fellowship with God. Life without sin. Life without pain and suffering and struggle. This world is consumed in darkness. It is broken and spiraling. Jesus came that we might have light in the darkness. A light that would overcome the darkness. To those on whom that light shines. Those who trust in him. Those who are under the, the cover of darkness, the coming of that light would bring then the culmination of joy. The culmination of joy. In verses 3 to 5, speaking to the Lord, it says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide, the, um, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, uh, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. From gloom to glory, this is it. From darkness into light, from sorrow into, into joy. This is the light in the darkness. This is what it looks like. When Isaiah was writing this, the nation of Israel had become small and weak. They were oppressed and harassed by various other mighty nations around them. They were just kind of pawns in their schemes. But in this day, it will be said, you've increased the nation. God's people would grow large, way beyond the, the, just the nation of Israel. Remember God's promise, Genesis 3.15, that was to, to all mankind. The promise to Abraham was that the whole world would be blessed. Verse 1, that the light would come to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, to Galilee of the Gentiles. The light would come to the place where people from all over the world had been gathered. Later, Isaiah 49, 6, 
has God speaking uh, to his future Messiah, to, to Jesus, and says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus came not only for the people of Israel, but as a light to the Gentiles, to the people, the scattered nations of the world. Good news. That's us. That's us. And he sends his light to shine in the darkness and he gathers his people out from the ends of the earth. And he gives these these two metaphors of the kind of joy that it will bring. This, This coming of the light, his people rejoice before him as with the joy of the harvest. Put yourself back in that day. You're living off the land. You you bring in the harvest and that's all you have for the year. And hopefully you grew enough and hopefully there wasn't a drought. But by the end of the year, um, things are either have been eaten or are starting to go rotten. And so you're picking away at the last few. You're, You're rationing out those last few really soft potatoes. When the next harvest comes, that's life. That's joy. That's abundant. You can can breathe out. You can can feast. And Israel did feast. They had the the feast of the first fruits. This grand celebration as the the harvest came ripe, this, this feast of just overflowing abundance. The gloom that they were in is overcome by this huge feast. The gloom that they were in And Isaiah talked about a hunger that would never be satisfied. Now there's feasting. The gloom would be invaded by the joy of plenty, of abundance. Secondly, it is the joy of victory. They will rejoice as those who divide the spoil. The spoil refers to the bounty that's left over when the war is done. If a kingdom is overthrown, you you burst open their vaults and, and their treasure becomes your treasure. A city or an army that's defeated, uh, the victorious soldiers are going to plunder that that village or those other soldiers. They're going to find the the gold and the valuables and the treasures and it becomes theirs. So not only is the war over and the fighting is done and there's this massive release of of adrenaline and and you can finally let your guard down, but now um, you're you're, you're treasuring, you're, you're rejoicing in the treasure. It's absolute victory. So the the yoke, the staff, the rod here, those are instruments of captivity, of of slavery used by the Assyrians. The Lord would break them. He's going to set them free from their captivity. He's going to rescue them from their oppressors. And he's going to do it just like he did on the day of Midian. And we get so lost in some of these Old Testament references and you read these things and you're like, what on earth is that? And and how am I supposed to know the day of Midian? Um, But don't give up too soon. This one's actually an easy one. Um, You you know this one. Somebody somebody know what it is? The day of Midian? Who are we talking about? Was that my son? No? Gideon? Yeah, it's Gideon. The Midianites. We even have a, a kid's song about it, right? Judges 7. Brave Gideon had 300 men. The Midianites had a host. 
But Gideon had the Lord, you see, so Gideon had the most. Gideon had the Lord. Gideon had the Lord. He won the fight with the Midianites, for Gideon had the Lord. Remember this this story. The the Midianites had this vast army, this host, 135,000 men who drew the sword. These are are trained warriors, 135,000. Gideon started with 32,000 farmers and young men kind of pulled up out of their homes significantly overpowered, way outgunned. And God says, no, no, we're not going to do it that way. You have too many men. Judges 7 tells us exactly why the Lord said that that was too many. Look at this, Judges 7 verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God says, I know your heart. You think you did this. You're going to think you're the ones. If it's, if it's only a disparity of 135,000 to 32,000, you are arrogant enough that you're going to say, I did that. Not going to happen. God will not share his glory. You will not boast. I'll be sure of it. And, and, and so the Lord begins to whittle down the army of Gideon. If you're doing the math, 32,000 against 135,000, um, it's not going to end well. They're thoroughly outnumbered, but God says, no. No, this is not going to be a victory that is, that is 98% God and 2% man. The Lord whittles down the army to to 300 men to wipe out this Midianite army of 135,000. 300 versus 135,000. This is, that's a 0.22%. It is 99.78% God and 0.22% man, is that what's going on here? No, no, God is saying, I will do it, period. This is me, I will rescue you. You are outnumbered and outgunned. This is over for you, but I will do it. He did it explicitly that way for that reason, so that all Israel would know that they were not saved by their own strength, not, not at all, 0%. God had done it. I don't know if you remember the second verse of that children's song, the the application of it. Now, if you would be a soldier true and win a full reward, be brave and strong in all you do and always trust the Lord. Is that what the story of Gideon is about? You need to be brave and strong and trust the Lord? No. No, that's the exact wrong application. It's not it. The application is not for Gideon to be be strong and brave like Gideon. The application is Gideon had nothing and God saved him. God did it. God rescues the weak and the needy and the humble, not the strong and the mighty. That's what the Lord means here in Isaiah. He will do it as in the day of Midian, just like he had done with Gideon and the Midianites. It would not be their strength. It would not be our strength. It would not be our effort. But it would be God who saves in him and him alone who rescues his people. 
when we were totally and completely unable to rescue ourselves, that he would be the deliverer, that he would break into the gloom. And by his rescue, there would be freedom from slavery. There would be joy as in the harvest. There would be celebration like when the victors divide the spoil. And then peace. The boots of tramping warrior in battle tumult. The garments rolled in blood. These are the garments of war. This is their, this is their war outfits. And they'll be burned as fuel for the fire. They'd be unneeded. They'd be obsolete, never, not washed and hung in the closet waiting for next time, burned as fuel. We don't need these anymore. Ever again, it's done. Angels sang at Jesus' birth, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus came so that through him, God's glory would break into the darkness and on earth there would be peace. But is there peace? Be careful here. We're not talking about world peace. We're not talking about the end of wars in this world right now. It's not just peace on earth in some general vague sense. It is first peace for his people. It is peace in the war between God and man. And those who trust in Christ, are the ones who will have this peace. It is peace to those with whom he is pleased, those on whom he has shown favor, because the light has come into the darkness. And there will be a time, the second coming, where there will be no war, that will be absolutely finished, but, but the primary focus and the, and the reason for that is peace with God. That's the plan. The plan was devised by God from before the foundation of the world. It was prophesied and foretold and foreshadowed by every verse of the Old Testament. It was initiated at the, at the birth of Christ coming in the manger. It began to move into motion. It was accomplished at the death of Christ on the cross and it will be completed at the return of Christ at the end of time. So right now we live in this overlapping time. The light has come. Sin has been defeated. In some senses, the victory is won, and, and yet the curse still lingers. I don't know about you, but our work is still troubled with thorns and futility. Our lives are still plagued with sickness and suffering. Our hearts are still struck by the pain of death. The plague remains today. The light has come, and it has overcome, but, but we still live in this world of gloom. So we wait. We wait with confident hope and expectation, trusting in him, walking in obedience, eagerly awaiting his glorious return. On that day, he will finish what he has started. And this world will be made new. Every tear will be dried. Death will be no more. There will be fullness of, of peace and joy, of rest and hope and abundant life and life eternal. Revelation 22.5 tells of that day, the night will be no more and there will be no light, uh, no, sorry, there will, 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forevermore. That's that's the culmination of it. That's the, the climax. That's the hope that we celebrate at Christmas. The absolute end of all gloom, of all sorrow, of all darkness and pain and suffering of every kind. That's what began at Christmas. Again, was accomplished on the cross and will be finished at the second coming. It's not just empty words. It's not just a a vague belief that somehow everything will be okay. Somehow everything's going to turn out. It's not nostalgia or magic or fairy tales. It is God's perfect, unstoppable plan through the coming of his son, to bring his people once and for all out of gloom and into glory. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this glorious plan. Lord, that, that by your mercy and grace, as the, this grand display of your glory on earth, that you have this plan building from, from the garden itself to, to, the, to the cradle, to the cross, looking forward to the second coming. And Lord, that in Christ we have hope that the day will come, there will be no gloom. It will be wiped away, gone forever. There will be peace and joy in your presence, full and complete. God, we so long for that day. Help us, Lord, in this day, Help us to walk in the light of Christ. Help us to know the truth that our Savior has come, that he has accomplished our salvation, that we can trust in him, that we can know the hope of eternal life even now, that we can have peace with you, that we can can walk even in this world that's continued to be plagued by gloom, that we can walk in the light, to know your light, to know your hope and your joy. Lord, we worship you. We thank you for this great plan, this great promise, and we trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's close in song together.